HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We do more varieties and flavors of cheese than anywhere else on earth. By pushing the boundaries of what cheese can and should be, find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome culinary historian Ken Albala. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Ken about Jelly, his new book, The Great Gelatin Revival. And we'll hear Ken's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. <laughs> As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. If you're like me, you have squeamish memories of off-putting jello molds or jello salad from the 70s and 80s. But gelatin has a long history and is elemental to cooking as butter or flour. Julia has almost a dozen recipes for dishes in aspect, in mastering the art of French cooking, and several more in volume two. She devoted episode 22 of The French Chef to aspic. And in the introduction to the companion chapter in The French Chef Cookbook, Julia says this, there is nothing like aspic to dress up a cold duck or a poached egg. It will turn either one into an object of incomparable and glittering chic. Really, Julia? Julia sounds downright smitten with gelatin, and she makes no excuses, nor does she change her tune 25 years later when she writes The Way to Cook, which includes a two-page spread for Mediterranean fish and aspic, replete with color photo. Why? 
because learning to make aspic and cook with gelatin is fundamental to French cooking. It's not weird or esoteric, but a foundational skill trained cooks learn from day one. Someone who understands just how evergreen gelatin is to the way we eat, and he knows his aspics from his gelés, is Ken Obala. Ken is the Tully Knowles Endowed Professor of History at the University of the Pacific in Stockton, California. Both a prolific and widely respected culinary historian, Ken has published 27 books, including academic monographs, single-subject food histories, reference works, and translations. His Beans of History won the IACP Jane Grixon Award for Food Writing, and Three World Cuisines won the Gourmand International Best Foreign Cuisine Book in the World. He was series editor for several food series, managing over 100 titles, and co-editor of Food Culture and Society. He is a trustee of the Oxford Food Symposium and a fellow of the Association for the Study of Food and Society. You can conclude he knows his food history. Inspired by an invitation daring him to create a dish by the popular Facebook group Show Me Your Aspects, really a popular Facebook group, Ken went deep down the gelatin rabbit hole, eventually leading to writing his latest book, The Great Gelatin Revival, Savory Aspects, Jiggly Shots, and Outrageous Desserts. Replete with dozens of recipes covering vegetables and salads, seafood, meat and poultry, dairy and eggs, fruit, and a miscellany chapter called Outrageous Combinations, Ken examines gelatin's ever-changing fortunes and wondrous constructions. He joins us today to talk jelly and tell us whether we're bringing Aspic back. Welcome to the podcast, Ken. It's a great pleasure to be here. We're delighted to have you. I think this is going to be really fun. But let, let's start. With you. How on earth did you get so obsessed with gelatin? Well, I wasn't really obsessed. Um, in fact, I never <laughs> ate it my whole life. <laughs> I was kind of horrified by it, just like everyone else who grew up in the 60s and 70s. Um, you know, my mother made these horrible dietetic multicolor layered jello concoctions and i feigned abhorrence one day <laughs> having claimed that i learned where gelatin comes from so i really never touched the stuff at all and what the first time i did was just a few years ago when someone as you said dared me to look at this facebook page and i kind of thought well let me give it a shot let me just make a jello for fun and what i did which is very unlike you know using a jello packet is took a really interesting cocktail, added gelatin to it, and a couple of interesting ingredients to make it savory. And I thought, why aren't people doing this? Why are they, A, either going to the very high end of very difficult, fancy, classical French aspects, or just using the jello packets, which are pre-flavored and artificially colored and really not so interesting. So, so it was kind of a revelation by pure accident that I got into jello. Yeah, and I feel like we're, one way gelatins come back, which is is in sort of in, into popular parlance or, or home cooking, is that you see cooks use it a lot on cooking competition shows uh, to make their dessert, which I think one key reason is you can make a fancy dessert faster than other options. But do you think that's been a part of it or is that really a reflection of what was going on in, in, in sort of dining tastes in the outside world? Well, I don't think it was popular in high fashion, you know, high end restaurants at all, um, really since 
the mid 20th century. I don't think you'd ever see it on a, on a nice looking restaurant where you'd never see it, a, a recipe in a cookbook. It went thoroughly, utterly out of fashion um, for reasons that I think have a lot to do with people wanting whole food and natural food and sustainable, organic, whatever it may be. And gelatin is exactly the opposite, even though it, it is actually a natural food. It comes from you know collagen and bones and connective tissue. But I think in people's minds, it looks like the most artificial of foods. So historically, you see in periods where people want to um, be creative and use bright colors and perfumes and interesting arrangements and put straight extraneous ingredients together. In fact, periods where they trust science um, in and especially science applied to food, those periods love Jello. Mid twentieth century, the Victorian era, um, late Middle Ages and Renaissance. It turns out also is a really really big time for gelatin, and those periods where they look to natural food. I would say the 17th century by and large, and I'd say the early 20th century, and of course, the era that we're in right now, um, gelatin really just looks, it looks silly. And it's and it's almost like if you serve it, it's for kitsch value. You know, you, you kind of laugh at it and go, ha ha, can you believe the, the perverse things that our, our parents made? It wasn't that disgusting? And you laugh at it. But I think that's going to change. <laughs> I think it's, it's something that um, we are beginning to trust science again in the kitchen, not not in the sort of high-end way that, you know, molecular gastronomy did, although that, that I think has been passe for a long time now, really, um, but in a way that we accept um, lab-grown meat, things that, that are very, very highly engineered. And I think that along with that, gelatin is going to have a comeback. Um, it's happened before. This is just, you know, it's not just a, a random prediction that I'd like it to come back. I think it has seen these surges in popularity alternating with periods where it was just reviled. And, and, and people really, you know, nowadays, I think most people find it kind of disgusting. Well, yes, I was uh, doing a medical procedure and I couldn't eat for 24 hours. And Ooh, the one thing you uh, could eat was Jello, which I, which it said, and you could only eat certain colors of it. And I bought it and I'd still, uh, it was just, did, did not make me think, oh, what have I been missing? I was well, like, this okay. Is what, I don't get why, why the association with hospitals. I mean, gelatin is not very nutritious. And certainly the stuff that has sugar and flavoring and coloring in it, that's not really good for you. So I don't, that, that association makes no sense. Neither. I think really it's just does... that it's easy to digest, that, that, that it yeah. just go, it goes right through you. But actually on that note, I think before we get farther, can you just give us a quick primer on the differences between what aspic is, what gelatin, they're all related obviously, but what is aspic, sure. what is gelatin and what is jello? Well, gelatin is sort of the umbrella term that covers any hydrocolloidal suspension that's reversible. I know that sounds like really scientific um, explanation, but it just means that you can melt the connective tissue in any animal. It could be, you know, usually it comes from pigs or beef, but chicken feet make a great gelatin. So does um, heart's horn, the, the, the antlers on deer. So does uh, sturgeon, a swim bladder of sturgeon, which is called isinglass, can also make a really good gelatin. Those are all gelatins. 
Um, and aspic is specifically when you suspend ingredients in it. And ideally, you want it to be clear and you know be able to see them and unmold it and have this wonderful presentation piece. So an aspic just means things stuck in your Jello. Uh, but Jello itself, J-E-L-L-O, is, is the brand name. It's just become a generic term for gelatin in the United States, whereas in Europe, uh, England especially, they use the term jelly, which if you say that to a person in the United States, we think pectin, you know, uh, like a jelly, strawberry jelly or something like yeah, that, like, which, is, which is totally Walter's different. Yeah, jelly. Right, right, right. Um, and I, th I think we, our use of the term is much more specific. It's good that we say jelly, we mean one thing. We say gelatin, we mean something else. But there are also vegetable gelatins. I mean, there's like, you know, agar agar and carrageenan and, and actually even starch, you know, can make a kind of uh, suspension like that. They don't they don't jiggle, which I, I find disappointing. <laughs> but, but otherwise, you know, the oh, only, only uh, animal based ones have the 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 jiggling property right and only they you know when you like sort of bite down on gelatin it sort of yields and then it shears very quickly and so it's really pleasant to chew on so you say but well, with, yes, with, exactly. with, with jello just to, is it made from the same ingredients or is jello entirely artificial no it's it's totally gelatin but it's flavoring and coloring and you know it's it's just not that tasty. It's, it's like eating. So, candy, like the really. gelatin part of it is natural. It's right. all the other parts of it that are much more artificial. Exactly. And theoretically, you could make natural, you know, gelatin. Uh, you just take gelatin powder that's unflavored, add whatever natural flavors you want. So, I, so I, you know, in this book, I never used the brand Jello. Um, I just saw no real reason to do that. And things that you would think were kind of grotesque like you know jello salads well i think if you make them with lime flavored jello and add mayonnaise and sour cream and things like that you, you're going to get something really horrid but if you take an ordinary salad and put it in like a glass of really nice crisp riesling it's magnificent or sauvignon blanc once it becomes gelatinized i think you you can make you put good ingredients in you're going to get really interesting things out and what what because I'm one of these people who's personally I, I've always been a very sensitive texture person, and I just find the gelatin texture like I don't even like I wouldn't choose panna cotta or other kind of desserts or I don't even really like flan which doesn't have gelatin. Wow. Well, but, I think the the texture is the appeal because it's kind of like human flesh. I mean, I know this sounds really weird, but they actually you know when they um are testing ballistics. Uh, you know, the impact of a gun, they actually make a mold of a person out of jello and shoot it into into the jello to see how far it'll go in. That's and this sick, is persuading but... us how that this is a good thing? <laughs> well, well, if you like biting. You if know? you like biting people, <laughs> you're going to enjoy jello. I mean, to be fair, right, people don't like to think about it. But when we, you eat a hamburger, you're eating flesh. So that's right, of course. But this is but this I think the real appeal of Jello is that it does have a strange texture and it seems, and it's fun. I mean, it's fun in a way that biting a hand to a hamburger is fun too, but this has got this bounce and jiggle and lovely sort of squishiness. Um, and I, you know, just sort of playing around with Jello, you, you start thinking, you know, can, does it bounce? Does it, uh, I, f I found the, the most interesting and, and bizarre use for Jello is as a trombone mute. You put it, put a big wad of Jello into the, <laughs> to the end of the bell and you get this lovely wow, wow, wow sound. So there's a lot of things you could do with Jello.
Oh, yes, that's a new one. Are you a trombonist? Is that why <laughs> I, that's uh, I played it in high school, <laughs> but I own one. And I just okay. thought, let me see if this will work. Um, I play the piano. But, um, <laughs> you you were extremely not... thorough in your research of Delton <laughs> exactly. of all, all purposes. Let's go back to something you mentioned at the beginning, because it's sort of the one that I get the most, which is probably the age at which I went to college and stuff, is there's like this deep connection between gelatin and booze. And I actually thought some of your most beautiful photographs were of your, you know, molds of a sort of alcoholic concoction. And is this something that goes really far back? Or what What do you think, how do you characterize the gelatin and booze relationship? It does go very far back. We, I think the recent phenomenon of gelatin being infantilized means that they took the alcohol out. But before Jello brand started selling its recipes, um, gelatin almost always contained wine um, and sometimes really interesting wine. Like if you use port or um, or sherry or Madeira or something like that, it's got just the right enough alcohol that you can actually get a nice little buzz, but it, it doesn't sort of hit your palate in a way that tastes really alcoholic. Like if you were to just take straight booze, the way people used to take Everclear and add, you know, gelatin to it. It doesn't taste good at all. In fact, it's, in fact, the way it just kind of sits there and seeps into your, into your uh, taste buds, it tastes really hot um, and, and unpleasant. So you have to add more sugar and you have to add more acid and, and basically hide that flavor. But if you're using really good alcohol, um, you find that it's, it's magnificent in jello form. In fact, it, how far does it go back? Well, Henry VIII's favorite dessert was a, a wine gelatin uh, that had been turned purple with a turnsole, which is a, a coloring flower. And so you have this lovely, clear, purplish <laughs> wine-based jello. I, I, you know, you always have this picture of Henry VIII with a big, you know, leg of something throwing it behind his back. But, but this is really elegant and delightful and very delicate. How would it be served to him? In a glass, yeah. So that's the molds don't really become popular until, gosh, nineteenth century or so. Um, before and would that, he use a spoon? Because yeah, it would. I, I mean, it would be formed, right? You can't knock it back, or you right. you sort of did. You know, you just spoon it out out of out of the glass. Yeah. Um, and what's really strange is that that in periods when the reputation of gelatin goes down, I would say like the 18th century, they have special jelly glasses. And it's a little sort of, it looks sort of like an absinthe glass. It's, it's, it's a conical and it has a little stem on the bottom. And people used to go to these, what they call jelly houses, um, which is a, a term, which means a house of prostitution. And you, you know, go in your starched wig and you have a little, little glass full of gelatin. <laughs> I, I don't know why that's associated with prostitution. Maybe it, it perks up your spirits or something like that. But the association is very much louche. Um, so so gelatin is, you know, you find jelly glasses in taverns and places of ill repute, but really not in restaurants when they appear. So you're you're shattering all my history. So fraternities and sororities did not invent jello shots. They <laughs> that's just, right. It's just a, a historic, it's actually a historic adaptation. Exactly. But you know who does claim to have invented jello shots is uh, Tom Lehrer, who is the, you know, the singer who did the Vatican rag and poisoning pigeons in the park. He uh, told some reporter at one point that he was working on an army base and they said no alcohol is allowed on the base. And so they put alcohol into gelatin and passed through the garden. They just said, here, we're having dessert. This isn't this isn't alcohol. And it's not a true story. He made, he made this up, but he he sort of um, confirmed it to many j journalists later that he actually invented the Jello shot. <laughs> but clearly, he did. 
but 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 the the source remains unknown as far as you know well it it's as early as people are making gelatin so the first recipes are in the 14th century so you know that's that's what i said why and do we if you because i i do get it now like of course yes everclear is very unpleasant to drink on its own you put it in sweetened jelly and it becomes a pleasure and then you're drunk very fast right it, is there any difference in how you metabolize alcohol when it's in gelatin or, or not really? No. In no. fact, strangely, if you, you know, I take one of my favorite cocktails, like uh, like an old fashioned or a boulevardier is even better, like bourbon and Campari and vermouth in equal parts and make it into a gelatin. And you tend to eat that quicker than you do sip the cocktail <laughs> because it's because it just tastes sweet and pleasant and it just goes down easily. And so you get you suddenly like get hit by it. Um, very quickly. Oh, so it's more like yes, that's true. Like the amount you would have to like pause and like breathe out mouth fire if you were just <laughs> you know doing shots of Everclear versus sucking down Jello shots. So, exactly. so it's more like it can kind of if you're trying to get drunk increase your rate of consumption. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. But but I think also if you add other ingredients, like I usually add dried fruits to that, it slows everything down, slows the rate of metabolization. Like if you're eating snacks with a drink, which is a good idea. Yeah, right. Of course, Italians never drink without food because they don't have a culture of like getting drunk, really. Right, right. Okay, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll be back with more than you ever wanted to know about gelatin with culinary historian Ken Obala. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin, the state of cheese, makes half of the nation's specialty cheese and wins more awards than any other state or country. Our heritage and traditions, master cheesemaker program, and the American propensity for innovation all put Wisconsin on the cutting wedge of cheesemaking. With over 600 varieties of cheese to choose from and 5,500 national and international awards and counting, get ready to turn your refrigerator into a trophy case. Enjoying a Wisconsin cheese is basically like winning a gold medal in culinary achievement. Set your mind at cheese. When you bite into a wedge of Wisconsin Wonderful, you know it is made with the ultimate skill and passion possible. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome back. We're talking to culinary historian Ken Albala about his latest obsession and book, The Great Gelatin Revival. So, Ken, we were t talking sort of how far back and how historic gelatin is. I was curious about when it kind of, you know, you were describing that aspic is actually sort of a method of using gelatin. And when did that come about? And was it something the French invented or something the French actually borrowed and then Frenchified and, and canonized themselves and took credit for? Yeah, well, I would say the French refined it. Um, the recipe books, usually the earliest ones are more layered gelatin, so like several different colors, what they would call a lech or a leech in, um, in English, just means like you'd have a green with parsley and a yellow with saffron and a blue with turnsole, and they'd slice it. So that, I mean, that would fit in the 50s also. But I think when you get recipes that are really complex and they're using it with savory 
dishes. Um, that's really 19th century. That's the Karem onward, you know, the era where they're building these big giant molds uh, with suspended food in it, either seafood or something else. And and I think even when Julia was making it, that's a, that's the tail end of that great tradition of fancy restaurant jellos. Um, and there's there's easy ways to do it and there's hard ways. I mean, you know, putting it in a mold is very hard because you've, you've got to unmold the thing um, and it's got to have structural support so it doesn't completely collapse. But the easy way to do it is you just spoon gelatin over something to give it this nice glaze. And you, you probably remember um, Julia did this to a duck. You know, she just had this duck glacé and poured, the, it, it looked disgusting, but it was, I'm sure it tasted wonderful. It was just this like, you know, gelatin she poured over a roasted duck, which you serve cold, which is lovely. Um, and of course it goes on top of, of uh, you know, pate. When you're making a pate, it's got a layer of aspic to keep out the bacteria. Um, but I would say the French classic aspects, like Eufangelé is a great example, are really delightful because the, the, the gelatin doesn't overwhelm and it's made with natural gelatin. It's not made with jello. It's, it's you know, just uh, unflavored jello or flavored with stock in the way that, like, you know, when you make a, you roast a chicken, the, the juices gelatinize, you know, in the pan afterwards once it gets cold. That mm. kind of jello is really easy to make. You're just boiling things down and, you know, the I think... What happened was the Jell-O company tried to convince people that making gelatin at home was difficult and disgusting and took so much time and you'll never be able to do it. And the way they kind of sold all convenience foods is they told people now, you know, gelatin was only available to kings, but now it's democratized. Now you can buy this little packet and serve food like they used to in fancy restaurants and for the royalty, which, you know, is, is basically not true. You know, gel, there are gelatins that are, um, and aspects that are really cheap and easy to make and just use off cuts, pig's feet, things like that, that you still find in central Europe and Germany and uh, Russia. Um, pacha is a, is a kind of aspect that's, you know, uh, um, Yiddish food, it, it's not very pretty because it's not clarified, but it tastes very good. Head cheese is also a kind of aspic. You know, you, you find mm. that Germany and Italy, it's just pieces of cured meat that it's in this very, very thick gelatin that you can slice. Um, but that's not fancy or expensive or, or anything. It's actually the, the cheapest food to make. So in a weird way, I think the Jello company kind of um, sold this idea that gelatin was being democratized and look how creative you can be and you're never going to disappoint your family if you serve this bright colorful thing because that's what people wanted in the you know post-war era baby boom they wanted convenience or, or they were taught to want it i think you know I'm, I'm struck while you're talking about jello of i can remember all of these marketing campaigns and they were yeah. they had a really good marketing team and for people who remember there was also sure. jello pudding which is slightly different, but related. And Bill Cosby was the spokesperson before he was disgraced and all, all of these things, sure. right? They made it compelling. And I assume they could do that because it was relatively cheap to produce. So they put a lot of money into selling a lot of it. Right. Well, I think that, you know, the era of Cosby and Jello pudding and Jigglers was the company getting desperate because sales were, were plummeting and they, and they have consistently since, you know, the seventies, um, because fewer and fewer people want to eat artificial food. And so that's, so I think they said, okay, let's sell this to 
um, children and let's in invent fun new ways that they can have, you know, play with their food because basically jigglers are for playing with <laughs> and eating. Um, the only places that that didn't happen is what they call the Jello Belt. So it extends from Utah to Iowa. Um, and those two states have sort of uh, been competing in the highest consumption rate of Jello. Utah usually wins. And, and I can't explain why, but Mormons love Jello. It's just one of those things that, you know, keeps, and they're proud of the fact, you know, um, in a way that sort of casseroles. <laughs> Presumably not, and not Jello shots. It's no, like not Jello shots. But the, Jello. The, the, the actual Jello brand, you know, is what they like. That is a kind of fascinating parallel that I wanted to share with you that, that I only recently learned actually by talking to the Pepperidge Farm people. When you were saying the Jello got infantilized, the same thing actually happened to Julia's favorite goldfish crackers, right. which were seemingly most people would be like, oh, they're a kid snack that some adults like. But actually, they were a cocktail food originally. Right. They were right. a Swiss cocktail treat. And then sure. sort of similarly, Pepperidge Farm had this idea to sell them to kids. And, you know, I, I can't remember who was just writing about – actually, I do remember it was like uh, – a political talk show, she was talking about how she just realized the smile was only recently added. And in talking to Pepperidge Farm, they've been thinking about trying to bring it back to an adult snack. Well, yeah, I think once you've made something into children's food, it's very hard to get adults to eat it again, unless it's ironic or sarcastic you know a kitsch or or they're just doing it and it's really this is really for the kids but they're taking you know i that's my grandchildren love goldfish and because they're fun to eat you know they're just little things you pop in your mouth but would you serve goldfish at a really serious cocktail party i mean i think that's why people find the fact that julia loved them so, so funny mm, because mm. here she is making these elaborate things and she pulls out goldfish which you know not homemade and and who knows how they're flavored and you know they're good but still um i, I think so in any case jello gelatin went down that path of stuff for children and invalids and mormons <laughs> i don't think it's gonna come back i mean that form of jello it will have to be entirely different and i think this this is what i took on as my mission was to make gelatin respectable again by using very nice ingredients and pushing the boundaries of what could be aesthetically pleasant and a little scary sometimes very scary and because people i think are are kind of tired of this, the culinary aesthetic that has reigned for quite a while has been very hyper localized hyper handmade authentic in a way that only people of certain backgrounds can make certain food because they grew up in the tradition or have that as their you know uh, heritage and i think people are just frustrated now at the point where they kind of want something entirely new and and it won't be you know a do do it yourself pickles anymore it'll be something that's fun and not too difficult and can give you sort of a, a blank canvas for creativity. And I think that's what, what gelatin really does, is you can put any flavor on earth into it, any ingredient can go into it, and they can be combined in ways that you don't have to play by the rules anymore. I think people are just kind of getting, they're getting frustrated and fed up with that, you know, everything being correct. And and this is the proper way you make this, that, that Gelatin is pleasant because no one can tell you. Here's the, you know, this is the right way to do it, the wrong way, because there are no traditions, you know, in, in gelatin. I mean, there are, but 
but it, we're inventing new ones, or at least I'm trying to invent new ones that will liberate people from rules. Well, let, let's talk about that, because uh, I, I wanted to talk to you about some of the recipes in the book, because there are a lot of them. And um, I, I thought you could highlight maybe a few that might change skeptics like me into jelly fans. What, what, what would you call out as, you know, some of the game changers? Well, I would say my favorites are the ones that use cocktails um, or use really interesting wine. And, and in a way that you would sort of pair certain wines with certain foods, like let's imagine you have a lobster and you pair that with a really nice buttery wine, you know, malolactic um, with vanilla notes and that sort of thing. You're not just sipping and tasting side by side. You're actually putting them on your palate at once and chewing the wine, literally. And I think those have, gastronomically, I think those are just really eye-opening. Um, I think the, the other thing is some ingredients that you would maybe not think of putting out as appetizers suddenly become, in, in this format, you can actually pick them up and serve them as an hors d'oeuvre. Um, so, so I think... It's sort of endless. I mean, really, the, the, the scope for creativity doesn't begin or end anywhere. You can just throw any ingredient. And literally, this is what I did. I used to open the refrigerator, come home from work and say, oh, gosh, God, I've got this rum in the cabinet. I've got some lime juice. Wouldn't a ceviche go really nicely in that? <laughs> you know, because the flavors are kind of aligned. So, so that's, that's really, I think, where I've, uh, the invention came in. And what's an example of a gelatin appetizer? Or uh, order. Oh gosh, there's there's dozens upon dozens. Um, What's your favorite? My my favorite, I think, is is the Boulevardier. And I don't know whether this is in the cookbook, but take um, dried fruits, uh, apricot, and raisins and dates, and set them in a Boulevardier, and like a and just cut bars out of it, and just place them a little firm, firmer than jello, so you can actually pick it up and put it in your mouth. Those are lovely. Starters. Oh, so it's kind of a comedy. It's like an edible cocktail bite rather than exactly. actually. A, a, exactly that. I mean, it is food, but not not like a heavy hors d'oeuvre. It's more of like a way of serving drinks as finger food. Right, right. Exactly. That's neat. Well, much has been made of your celebrated lobster tail and champagne dish, um, which is visually striking. Does it taste good? The lobster one tastes fantastic. I mean, how bad could lobster be? You know, you'd have to try hard to ruin it. Um, I think the one that that kind of upset people a lot was I put a whole baby octopus into um, into, I think it was uzu. But I just because you see this little octopus and it's frightening. Or one that frightened people was a um, a BLT that didn't have bread. It was set into a martini. So you, so you see a layer of bacon, a layer of lettuce, a layer of tomato, really, really great tomato. And I cut it in a triangle and put, a, put an olive and a toothpick on top of it. So you literally just pick up this little half sandwich and get all the flavors of a BLT, which incidentally goes wonderfully with a martini. So, so it you know, looks crazy, but tasted fantastic. But I can't get over how do how do you talk to someone skeptical like me? Because I'm like, why would you take lobster that's amazing and embedded in gelatin? Well, I think it, it's just a, a, you know, if you've had lobster a hundred times and always had it grilled or always had it boiled or had it in a lobster roll, what's wrong with trying something new? <laughs> you know, just like like 
And because the texture of lobster, you know how lobster is sort of got a nice pleasant chewiness to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's soft, but it but it does have some bite. Well, imagine just adding to that a little bit so that you're accentuating the flavor and then you're using champagne. So obviously that flavor is going to combine in every bite and it just adds to the whole aesthetic experience. I would say even more so with oysters because oysters are lovely, magnificent, but imagine if you have the drink surrounding the oyster and when you slurp it, you're not just biting the little oyster in there, but you have this whole kind of symphony of other flavors flying around in your mouth um, and something bigger to bite on than a little oyster. It's just, it just adds to it, I think. So your your sort of your approach with in all these issues, whether it's cocktail or, or or savory courses or thing is they're kind of ways of adding flavor profiles and layers that are integral in ways that are otherwise difficult or impossible to do. That's exactly it, and and making it easy and fun to eat, which is you know if you have a bouffe bourguignon, it's you've got to sit down and have it on a plate. Um, but if you encase it in something, sort of the way that you, you know, you obviously you can encase it in a pie or something like that. But if you were to put it into a jello form and lo- and you could look into it and pick it up and hold it and have, you know, a nice burgundy, I think it just adds so much more fun to the dish. Well, let's talk about the, one of the book's premises, too, is that, that you're seeing this great gelatin revival. And you were talking very eloquently about the whereas Jello was talking to you years ago, talking to us about a, a, a democratization in a different way. You were kind of talking about seeing gelatin in this lane of people rejecting being told they need to run a whole artisan production factory in their kitchen. And this is an easier thing. Is that the future that you see for this revival or what kind of predictions do you have uh, with your crystal ball about gelatin's future? Okay. Well, I, I think it will be like bread. You know, there, there's very easy bread to make and there's really complicated bread to make with, you know, that will take a long time to start to make a sourdough and to buy the right equipment. And I think gelatin is the same way for those people who really love playing in the kitchen. I say, go all the way, use the chicken feet or the pig's feet, make the gelatin yourself, get fantastic wine, make the stock for those people who want to spend 10 minutes, buy a little packet of Knox gelatin, throw that into your cocktail, throw a couple of interesting things in there, cherries, maybe whatever it may be. And, and have fun. And, and I think there's like every all cooking, there's the really, really easy way to do things. And there's the really hard way to do things. And if you learn both, then if you have the time, you can make, make a real stock, for example. If you don't, you buy a, you know, buy a concentrate or something. And that's, that's, I think, true of all cooking. But people have not, people have been so de-skilled that they've forgotten the really interesting way to make aspic, which is from scratch. And is there a significant taste difference? Um, like, for example, if you made bread the easy way or the long way, you might get that um, between Knox and buying chicken feet. Sure, there is, um, because obviously it tastes like the ingredient you're making that out of. Um, the gelatin, um, the Knox stuff doesn't have any flavor at all. They've they've gotten it, taken it out. Um, so if you make something out of meat, it will definitely taste like meat at the end. I, and so what is Knox still made from meat? They just perfected yeah. a, a yeah. technique of neutralizing the flavor. Exactly. And they take out every, you know, impurity and they clarify it. And um, I actually went, this was totally by accident to a um, gelatin factory in Germany where they make the stuff that goes into gummy bears, incidentally. And 
it was just fascinatingly amazing. You know, the place that makes the sheets that are more used in professional um, gelatin. And I think, I don't know how they, they get all the, well, they remove all the fat and they obviously remove all the impurities and it's filtered and it's strained. And uh, at the end, you get this absolutely pure sheet of collagen with nothing else in it. That's impossible to do at home, but you can come pretty close. You know, you clarify it the same way you clarify a stock. But I have found that you really can't get the meat flavor out of it if that's, you know, unless you use in like a fruit that overpowers it and makes it disappear. And let's talk about that for one second, just because it's so speaking of kid food and has been even ubiquitized into vitamins and things, gummy bears and like Haribo's are, are gelatin plus another ingredient to give it that texture. Is that how No, it's no, it's just a whole lot of gelatin. It's, oh, it's, it's just, just gelatin and flavoring too. Yeah, and then molded. That's it. Yep, exactly. So people, you know, make their own gummy bears. You just have to use two or three times the amount of gelatin. Um, there's a whole sideline of making um, cannabis line jelly beans, uh, jelly bears, you know, that are, uh, you know, I've never done that, but it's, but people do that and love it. Yes. That, yeah. So I'm still processing that. It's a, <laughs> <laughs> go, the, the accidental it's consumption of that. Yeah. I was going to say it's an edible, but boy, could that go really wrong with yes, children? It could. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And so I think I was going to ask you this, but I think you've sort of answered it is, 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 is gelatin as much about art and presentation more so than eating? But I feel like, which, which seemed like, you know, you were talking about Karem and his creations and all the French work with aspects seemed like it was kind of about the chef showing off what they could do rather than about the deliciousness of what you were eating. Do you think the future though is more about the, this intersection between deliciousness and presentation? Well, ideally, it's both. You know, if you have something that is all about presentation and you can't eat it, like I would argue many very fancy cakes are just about presentation and buttercream tastes gross and, and most mm. white cake tastes gross. And, you know, and they're putting cardboard and, you know, wood supports inside. That's just mm. about presentation. But I think ideally you want something that does both. You know, you don't want food that is really ugly and gelatin can get ugly. And, and some, but, you know, I think if you strike a balance between something looking beautiful because we eat with our eyes first and something that is really tasty, um, that's great. And and I have to say, I have made things that look beautiful and did not taste so great. I didn't put them in the book. And I had things that were so delicious and <laughs> looked horrible that I just couldn't, couldn't put them in. Mm. <laughs> All so, right. <laughs> We're gonna stop there on the the medium ground between beauty and horrid and taste, and uh, we'll be back to hear Ken's Julia moment. Let us know what you think of today's show and your opinions about gelatin. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact juliachildfoundation.org, or better yet, you can also tweet us at juliachildjcf. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really. You just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. Ken, what's your Julia moment? Well, when I was very young, my mother used to put me in a high chair in front of the TV with Julia on, 
And, uh, you know, this was up until the point where I went to kindergarten, I guess. And sometimes even after that, I would just, you know, come home from school and it would be cooking shows on. And I, I'm sure that's where my love for food came from. But I apparently, and this is, you know, what my mother told me when I was older, that I suspect I learned how to speak English from Julia because I used to say things and my parents would make fun of me. Like I would say tomato and <laughs> they're from Brooklyn. They were from Brooklyn and, it's, you know, it's a tomato. And so there were these weird things that I used to say that I'm almost certain I must have gotten from Julia. That one sticks in my mind, especially. <laughs> and, um, yeah, that's funny too that you're you because you write in the book about how your parents were actually not foodies and were kind of dieting all the time or eating yeah. what was pers so why was she watching Julia? She found Julia entertaining. Well, it was the thing you did, you know, you put on whatever was on TV and and I think whatever came over public TV was Julia and Graham Care and you know it was, it was all cooking shows were on for a whole block in the afternoon. And so that's what she mm. put on. And, and it wasn't that she wasn't interested in cooking. She was a terrible cook, but she did it every day, you know, because people needed to eat. So so I think she she looked for inspiration in those shows, even if she didn't actually cook those recipes. Got it. Well, Ken, thank you so much for joining us today. It was great fun. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Our pleasure. And thanks, everyone, for joining us. To keep up with Ken, he's at Ken Albala on Instagram. It's A-L-B-A-L-A. -A -A, and at Ken.Albala on Facebook. The book is The Great Gelatin Revival. It's out now from the University of Illinois Press. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. You can check out new Julia Child video clips. Well, they're actually not new clips, but they're new, newly available um, on Facebook. It's from The French Chef. And just go to at Julia Child on Facebook. You also want to make sure you're following at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. If you're not already, I'm at T. Shulkin on Instagram. A reminder, the 2023 Taste of Santa Barbara is coming up May 15 to 21. You want to follow at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram for the latest news about events in and around Santa Barbara, including a soon-to-be-announced spring pop-up. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at GBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Armin Spengen. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.